so I just want to I just want to quickly comment on the you know, getting married thing. <laughs> so it is quite a thing, and I'll tell you why it's quite a thing, because the aluch for its size really punch above its weight in terms of hooking people up. And uh, I, I'm, I'm not going to lie, I mean, this is per capita. I think we, we, we're up there with any place in the world. I can almost guarantee you we've got a much better success rate than Tinder or any of the other apps. We, I met my wife at, at Dialogue. That's why I started Dialogue, actually. I was, I was very lonely. And I, Arman and Alvara, they, they met here. Um, Armand and Linky met here. Now Henning and Anneke. There are a few, Voldu and Isabella. Um, as a matter of fact, this is going so well for so many people that, um, that Henning and Armand's friend Vian came all the way from Limpopo <laughs> to just see how it works. And when I asked him what's going on, he says, well, I don't know. I've got a ring in the car. Um, let, me just, let me just see how this, how this pans out. But in any case, congratulations, you guys. I am very, very excited uh, uh, about it. So... Um, speaking of, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. This is not a, this is not a church. We, um, this is a what do you call it? Um, dating, dating community, which we which we open every now and then with prayer and whatever. So now I actually know why you guys are here. Like, oh, can you please just get done with the stupid sermon? Uh, Anyways, but I'm very chuffed. I'm very chuffed. But I, I am actually keen to sit down because it's, it's in the double figures. I promise you. It's, it's impressive. All right. So, hey, on that lovely note of people finding love and women and men spending their lives together, I, I feel stupid to tell you that we are now going into more rockier territory in terms of where we are in the book of Corinthians. And that is probably one of the more difficult passages in the Bible, and that is 1 Corinthians 11 from, from verse 2. Now, usually one has to introduce your talk a little bit, but this thing just needs no introduction in terms of the controversy. So I'm just going to read this. Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven." For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her, sh cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, 
but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man and man independent of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Now, if that is not spicy enough, let me just add this for good measure. I'm now going over to chapter 14 from verse 34. The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law always says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Good evening, everyone. Now, not so long ago, 20 years ago, I had a computer, and on my computer I had MS-DOS, all right? And I, I was busy doing my work, and I saved it on a floppy disk. And after that, I was working on something, and then someone paged me. And then uh, they paged me because they lost their Tamagotchi. And at that time, I was installing my video player, so I couldn't quite respond at that moment. But I went to him, and I lent him my Walkman, and I took his Game Boy. Now, 20 years ago, that sentence, although not a, a very literary profound sentence, would have made sense to people because that was the technology that was around and people interacted with it and people, uh, people, people liked it. The reality is that in 20 years from now, the, the technology that, we're going to, that we have now will be will be seen as from the Stone Age. And if we just move various sentences, various interactions, various conversations, and we just move it 20 years in the past in Pretoria, then somebody reading it 20 years later will be very perplexed, will be very confused. Are you guys with me? Now that is just time-wise. Let's move geographically for a second. Now, my, my wife is taking uh, her students to Japan later, later this year, and she has to brief her students on all sorts of Japanese customs. So, for example, the, the guys who have tattoos, they must hide their tattoos as far as possible in public. It's considered rude to reveal your tattoos. And there are all sorts of bathhouses and public swimming pools and stuff in Japan, and they're not allowed to enter if you have tattoos. So she needs to brief them on these... Uh, customs. Um, also, you're not allowed to walk and eat at the same time. It's, it's considered very rude. If you are walking and you're eating, that is, that is super problematic. Not blow your nose in public. I kind of agree with the, the Japs there. And, and then when you enter your house, enter a house, obviously no shoes. Now, Japan is not a backwards place. It is very progressive on so many levels. Yet, you just move us a few thousand kilometers to a different place, and you all of a sudden have different customs that seems very problematic to us here in South Africa. Some cases it's just peculiar, some cases it is just problematic. Now imagine for a second, we not only go 20 years back, we go 2,000 years back, and now we go into the Middle East and Mediterranean area uh, of, of the world 2,000 years ago. Can you understand that there will be loads of customs, language, 
manners that to us moderns would be foreign. Can you guys agree with that? So that's why we need to approach this passage and most of the Bible for that matter with a lot of humility. We need to know that there are plenty of things that we simply won't be able to fully grasp. Another thing that we need to understand is that we are reading somebody others, someone else's mail. We are reading someone else's mail. In other words, the Gospels were written for us. Even if you, if you think of John, um, the, uh, the evangelist, he, he would say, I, I compiled all of this so that you can believe. So in other words, the way that he tells that story is he wants to tell you that story as if you weren't there and, and he wants you to believe in that story. But we are now literally intercepting mail from, from one pastor to a church, or from a church planter written to his church. So there are plenty of holes in the letter, and we need to do the work to try and figure out what's, what's going on there. Another assumption that we can make from the get-go is that this is a very patriarchal culture, super patriarchal. In other words, you, 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 you shouldn't look at the customs here and try and figure out what is, what is different from us today. You should rather look at what would have been different from their society back then. In other words, what of the customs, what, 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 what of the, which of the customs that we encounter in this passage is radically or are radically different from how they did it back in uh, first century Corinth? Are you guys with me? That's a better way to, to deal with this because the fact of the matter is, friends, many people, our grandchildren, will look in on us and our lives and they will be tempted to cancel us. They will ask questions, what on earth were those people thinking? In the same way that when we look at our parents and we think, how did you guys just allow apartheid? Why do you think it was a good idea to perm your hair like that? You, we, we look in on our parents and our grandparents and we think, geez, we, we canceled them, so to speak. What were you guys thinking? And we want to dismiss their, their way of life as, 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 as medieval. Well, that's going to happen to us as well. So we need to be humble. We need to be humble as we approach something that is very far removed from us. Okay. Now, I'm going to make a lot of introductory remarks before we get to this passage. The first one is this. Paul's message, the gospel, and Paul was uh, one of its primary um, exponents in the, in the first century, was good news to women in the first century. That's why women flocked to the early church, so much so that when Roman apologists, pagan apologists, were arguing against Christianity, they would say, this is just a religion for women, slaves, and children. How on earth can you take a religion seriously that's filled with women, slaves, and children? That, to, that tells, to me, that tells us that whatever happened in that community was really good and revolutionary for women, slaves, and children compared to what was happening around them. Are you guys with me? So that's the first bit. The second thing that we know is that you had rich women, we read this in Acts 16 and 17, who supported Paul, who were on board with Paul and his, his, his mission. We read about them, influential women, all the time. It's hard to imagine that they would support something um, voluntarily, that is one, persecuted, and two, so restrictive to their, 
to their lives. Now, in Ephesians 5, we're not going to look at that passage. In Ephesians 5, it is a passage that you've probably all heard, especially if you've gone to a, a, a wedding. You've got that line where it says that uh, women, you need, you need to submit to your husbands. Uh, men, you need to love your wives as Christ loved the church. And to many, it's difficult to hear that. It seems a bit problematic. But, but here's something to consider. Once you read uh, a passage like that against its ancient background. Now, Tom Holland, you've heard me quote him a couple of times. He is a, a British historian. He's not a Christian. And he talks about how revolutionary... Paul's thinking was towards women rights, women emancipation in the first century. It was incredibly good news. So this is what he says. He says, Christianity radically changed that. He's referring to just what the pagans did, what the Greco-Roman world uh, thought of women. It's there in the very earliest Christian texts. Paul's letters, and Paul is a Jew, so he has an idea that the binary is male and female, God creates man and woman separate. So he brings that assumption to the table, but he also brings another novel assumption, which is that Christ came and suffered death out of love for humanity. And so what Paul does is to say that love, all you need is love. Love is the greatest animating force in the world. And if we want to have a sexual relationship with another human being, then it must be true to the love that Christ has shown for humanity. So what Paul does is to say that there can be only one way, one proper way of having a sexual relationship, and that is if you have it in marriage that is monogamous. The Jews would have had numerous wives. The Romans were monogamous, but they could kind of dump their spouses at regular intervals. Paul says, no, it has to be monogamous. It has to be lifelong, uh, and it has to be a monogamous relationship. Something very, very odd. There's nothing like this before. But more than that, the reason why this matters is that Paul says that the man who marries a woman is like Christ marrying the church. So that gives an incredible sacral potency to every man and every woman in a married relationship. These Roman households who, until they got converted by Paul, are taking for granted that they have the right to sleep with who they like. But Paul is now saying, no, you are the image of Christ. Christ doesn't go around sexually forcing himself on the culinary maid or the page boys, only with your wife. And likewise, it might seem sexist now that the woman gets to be the church and doesn't get to be Christ, but actually what Paul is doing is give an incredible, potent, sacral quality to the physical body of a woman, that a woman is not there to be sexually abused. She's not there to be jumped on by a powerful male, and if that's true of an aristocratic woman, it's also true of the lowest, humblest woman in a Roman household. The scale of this transformation cannot be overemphasized, and it's something that offers, no woman, that, that offers to women a dignity that no previous dispensation had offered. And over the course of the first centuries of Christianity, this understanding of sex eats like an acid into the understanding that Romans previously had of how sex operates. And over the course of Christian history, the church imposes on believing Christians the sense that being a powerful male does not license you to have multiple wives and concubines. You have to focus on one. I know that's a lot, but I'm just trying to tell you that this little line that to us seems a little bit regressive, men love your women like Christ loved the church, men submit to your, uh, women submit to your wives, uh, and then he says, no chance of divorce, guys, you're stuck, that would have been revolutionary 
for women's rights in the first century. They cannot be dumped in the, there were certain rabbinic Jewish traditions that said if your wife burnt your toast, you could divorce her. Now Paul is giving so much safety to, to a very vulnerable female in the, uh, in, the first, in the first century. Can you see that if you look at it, not from our lens, but from its immediate context, this would have been revolutionary. Are you guys with me? Okay, good. Now, when we, when we move on, because there are plenty of, of things that I, I want to just refer to before we get to this, the, the passage that we read, and that is um, other things that we need to consider. So, for example, the same Paul who wrote this passage, this letter to the Corinthians, he is the same guy that wrote the letter of the Romans, sent it to the Romans, and probably sent it with a lady called Phoebe. And Phoebe, we read about her in uh, Romans 16, verse 1. She was carrying the letter, and what we know about people who couriered letters back then from one teacher to the next is that when it was read in a public setting, that person would have to explain the bits of theology that is complex or the bits of philosophy that is complex. So she would, in that public reading, somebody, maybe she might read it, somebody else might read it, and then they'll say, what on earth is going on there? And then she would say, well, I've been spending a lot of time with Paul. What he means by that is the following. So that implies that some form of public teaching would have taken place when Phoebe delivered the letter to the Romans. In Acts 18, verse 26, we read of Priscilla, Aquila and Priscilla, um, who, who, who mentored a guy called Apollos. Apollos was one of the, 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 the rock star evangelists in the first century. As a matter of fact, when we started our, our letter to the Corinthians, we talked about the factions that existed between Paul and Apollos and, and Peter. And Apollos was this, this rock star, but when he first came to preach, Priscilla and her husband said, um, Apollos, we really like your, your rhetoric, you're really good, we just need to guide you a little bit more on what the gospel exactly is. So she is the, one of the very earliest professors of theology, training a young dynamic evangelist to do his work. Um, in Romans 16 verse 7, Paul is greeting everybody. He says, greet uh, Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and fellow prisoners. They are well known among the apostles. Now, Junia has been translated in, in many previous translations, if not most previous translations, as Unias, which is a male name. But there's no respecting Greek scholar that, can, that, that says that there's any early textual evidence to suggest that. It was a female, and the guys were very embarrassed about that fact, and they turned it into a, a male. But it seems like there is a lady called Junia, and she was praiseworthy, well-known among the apostles. So among all the apostles, Junia is pretty good. Now, many people say that, no, 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 she's just has a, she has a good reputation among the apostles, but, but that is also not very clear uh, from, from the passage. Likewise, we don't even have to debate Romans 16, verse 7. We can just go to the resurrection accounts. Who were the first people to see the empty tomb? They were women. In other words, whilst the apostles were hiding away, the apostles to the apostles were a bunch of women, Mary Magdalene and, and, and company. And then I'm, I'm, I'm giving you like a, a brief history of everything. I, I hope you guys are, are still here. In Luke 10, 
there is this story of Mary and Martha, where Martha is working in the kitchen, hosting Jesus and his disciples, and he, he tended to invite more people than, uh, than, than a host would necessarily want to host. So Martha is scrambling to, to make everything, and then her sister Mary is there sitting by his feet, and she's not helping Martha. And then Jesus corrects Martha for complaining about Mary not helping her. And she says, no, don't worry about Mary. Now, I've heard plenty of sermons that says, ah, you see what's going on there is Mary is the contemplative person. Uh, Martha, she serves God through actions. Mary, she's one of those people who serves God through her mind, contempl contemplatively. Maybe, I guess. But nothing... This, it is impossible for a first century Jew reading that text, it is impossible for him not to see that when someone sits at someone else's feet, you are a disciple of that person. That's why when Paul talks about his Jewish credentials, he says, I sat at the feet of Gamaliel, who was this rock star Jewish rabbi um, that, that Paul learned from. And if you learn from somebody, you weren't considered to be a disciple just for the sake of getting in a lot of knowledge and never using it. A disciple was someone who would hand out and give that knowledge to people around them. So, so Mary, what makes her very problematic in that passage is the fact that she's behaving like a man. She is sitting at the feet of Jesus. That was the posture of a disciple. Most disciples were male. We do not have a single... We do not have any evidence of female disciples to rabbis in the first few centuries, except for, for one, and that's Jesus. All right. There's another one that I want to, want to mention because I can see you guys are still unconvinced. Kenneth, Kenneth Bailey, he is this incredible, incredible uh, theologian. And what makes him interesting is that he spent most of his life in the Middle East, pretty much going from one civil war to the next, doing theology there. And he spent a lot of time in Lebanon and Egypt and uh, I, I, I don't even know where else. And he makes a fascinating observation. He says this. He says the reason why women were at the cross of Jesus. I know I'm jumping around in the Bible. Are you guys still with me? They were women at the cross of Jesus. The disciples were nowhere to be found. He says the reason why women were allowed to be at the cross is because women were allowed to be at the cross. They weren't considered a threat. To, they weren't considered leaders of this movement of Jesus. They're not a threat. It's very easy to allow them there. There was one guy, however, with the women. Who was he? John. John, the beloved disciple. Now, Bailey says... That probably says a lot about his age. Now, we know that John the disciple, that beloved disciple, he grew up to be like 500. He, he, he uh, wrote the book of Revelations and John very, uh, very late. So he was probably, a, I don't know, a, a boy still, one that the Romans didn't consider a threat. But I don't want to hammer on that now. What I want to say is that women were able to walk. And what Ken Bailey says about his experience going through civil wars is he says, when you've got these civil wars in a place like Beirut, then the women would go along doing their daily work. They would go to the groceries, they'll take kids to school or whatever, and the guys would do the shooting. But guys were not free to walk around the streets of, of Beirut because they are considered a threat. If a guy took the children to school, that would be problematic. But a female doing it, it's not, a, it's, it's not problematic. 
Now just notice what happens in Acts 8 verse 3. Saul, who would later become Paul, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now what is interesting about this is all of a sudden, you do not have just men who are going to prison, you've got women who are going to prison. And if you want to stop a movement, like they wanted to stop Jesus' movement, women, you didn't arrest women because they were like the lowest level of followers in that movement. Why would you arrest them? Even today, if they arrest like a, um, like a dodgy, dodgy uh, movement, they would arrest the top guys, but they're not going to look at anybody at the bottom. So why is, is Saul running around arresting women? Because they were taking a leading role in the early church. That is really the best explanation that we, that we have. Now, Galatians 3.28 is that famous line that you guys should commit to memory, by the way, uh, that there is now neither um, woman nor man, neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. We are all equal in Christ. You guys know that line. Now, Paul is the same guy who wrote that. It's the same guy that wrote 1 Corinthians uh, 11 and 14. But what I want you to know is something else. There was a famous rabbinic prayer that was almost said at every synagogue in the first century. And that, is the, and that prayer went something like that, like this. Thank you, God, Yahweh, for not making me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. And then when the men prayed that, the women would pray, thank you, Yahweh, that you have made me according to your will. <laughs> so that was, th 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 those prayers were said in synagogues across all the, the, the Jewish diaspora, wherever they were, that prayer would be prayed. Now, what does Paul do when he says in Galatians 3.28, there's now neither male nor female. Just look at how he inverts this thing Topic for topic, point for point. He says, the rabbinic prayer says, thank God for not making me a woman. There is now neither woman nor male. Thank God for not making me a slave. There is now neither slave nor free. Thank God for not making me a Gentile. There is now neither Jew or Gentile. All are one in Christ. Can you see that this revolution of Jesus has upended these patriarchal, racial... Um, uh, name it what you want, these, these assumptions. Jesus' kingdom has now come, and things are going to work a little bit differently. Um, I've heard plenty of arguments, and I find it quite convincing, that one of the reasons why Paul um, argued against circumcision was because circumcision wasn't just something, you know, I'm, I'm for instance, very glad that, that we, we let go of that custom, but many if not most people who were circumcised were very proud of it. It was, it was something that they, they were very proud of this, this mark of God and obviously this mark of being a male. I remember being in, in Turkey uh, a few years ago and we're walking past the street party and there are chairs, so we just sit in the chair and these people are bringing us drinks and that's kind of nice. And we're asking, so whose birthday is it, whatever, but very little English, we've got very little Turkish, we don't quite know what's going on. And um, 
we try to, is it a birthday party? Is it like a bar mitzvah for a Muslim? What, what, like what, what's going on? And because we see this little boy being carried and these little girls um, waving him with palms, we, we, we just didn't know what was going on. And eventually there was one hand signal that indicated to us what was going on, and that is, that is the party. It is his circumcision party. And this boy was the king of the world. He was like very happy because he was circumcised. Now... Paul says, in this, in this new movement, the, the, the way in which we signal salvation, the way in which we signal being God's property and living in his kingdom, is not something, that, not through male circumcision, that only males can walk around with proudly. It is baptism that male, female, slave, and free, Jew and Gentile can all partake in. So by abolishing the circumcision, it also made this uh, uh, sort of male uh, tradition, uh, this male, uh, what's the word, um, sign, redundant in the new work that Jesus was doing. So all of these things, friends, must be carefully considered when we come to, come to these, these difficult passages, not just this one, but any other difficult passage that we might find on, on women's rights. Something else that's worth noting is that Paul is writing to a specific church with specific problems, and he is more than likely correcting specific problems in that church. So let's delve into this passage a little bit. So what's the deal with head coverings? So it says that... A, a, a woman who prophesies without her head covered dishonors the goddess just as well as her head must be shaved off. It is, it is completely uh, forbidden. Now, it's very difficult for us moderns to make sense of uh, a command like that. But just know, in super secular, heathen-filled Europe, when you want to go in a cathedral, you still have bounces at that cathedral. And if I walk in there with a hat on, they immediately tell me, please take that hat off. That's very rude. Um, if there's a lady walking in the heat of summer and it's just a little bit too skimpy, too hot pantish, too, like, just a line, too much shoulder, they will ask that lady, please put something on. So even to this day, we have customs that we think should be um, upheld. Likewise, it would be improper... Um, uh, if I, let's say we manage to convert all of these CrossFit people to come to church, and they decide that they're going to do CrossFit, and then they're going to come to church. And then I've got a friend, and he is overseeing our church, and he's writing from, say, Bloemfontein. And he says, um, you want, I'm a little bit worried. And that is, when you guys come together to church, there are a lot of those girls with those pants that looks like it's been vacuum packed um, around, around them. I am concerned that that is distracting the men from worship. So please do not, uh, it, it is forbidden for a woman to walk around with those pants. That would actually make sense in this context. It would help, it would be difficult, it'll be good for Vian, but it would be difficult for the rest of us to concentrate on, uh, on, on what is what is the primary reason why we are, why we are here? Um, so that's probably what's going on. Now you might, might ask, okay, but here, for goodness sake, here. Well, here in the ancient Middle East, 
what's considered female hair for that matter, uh, I should rather say, um, what's considered a private part. So you, you cover your private parts and hair is considered a private part. P plus, if you wanted to seduce men, you just showed them a little bit of your, a little bit of your hair. Hair was the ultimate enticement for any, uh, for any man 2,000 years ago. And the only females walking around in Corinth and any other city in the Greco-Roman world, for that matter, with their head uncovered, uh, would have been prostitutes because they are you know, trying to seduce these men. And we know that men really like themselves a full head of female hair because even the Jewish love poetry tells us this. And by the way, um, like Vian, I'm not sure, you've got a girl, but maybe try it. Just... Just look at your, uh, your, your girlfriend or your um, future girlfriend and just read to them Song of Songs 4 verse 1. Thy hair is a flock of goats. Thy hair is a flock of, of goats. Now, everything, uh, the Corinthians would have said back then, everything is lawful for me. They were very excited about this emancipation that they've experienced. And the result would have been that uh, they said, okay, well, because we are now free in Christ, we can just drop the hair. But Paul is saying, no, the hair is seducing the other men. It's distracting the other guys. Don't do that. Keep the head coverings on. And now I want to sort of move over to the uh, women be silent bit. So you might take exception with the hair. I don't think you should. But you might take exception with the hair, but just notice what he's saying. When the women speak in church, they must have their head covered. What is the assumption of that line? Women are speaking in church. They are prophesying in church. They are praying in church. That is the assumption. So in other words, in the early church, women were an active part of, of worship. Prophecy is not something that you go do in the bathroom. Prophecy was something that you did publicly to the rest of the congregation. So it was part of the act of, 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 of worship. Now, many people today would say, okay, yeah, we see that, that women prophesied in the church and they prayed in the church. There was that. But, um, but the, the teaching, the, the, the rank, if you will, of teaching is, is not allowed. But here's the problem. Prophecy consists of two-thirds of the Old Testament, so if you say that prophecy is not something women are allowed to do, only teaching, just know that sort of the, the, the most prominent form of teaching that the Bible employs is prophecy. Also, the implications of what you're saying is that the woman can, can say anything in church as long as she doesn't get it from the Bible. But if she gets it from the Spirit and she closes her eyes and she feels something, she can say that, but, but she's not allowed to look at the Bible and tell us what, what she gets from the Bible. That doesn't make sense. So we can just, just reasoning through this, we figure out that there's something, uh, there's, there's, there's something wrong here. Also, if you want to list the gifts and say that teaching is up here, women can prophesy, well, when Paul provides the lift, a list, which I don't think should necessarily be read as uh, hierarchical, he says, and these are the gifts that Christ has given the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors, and the teachers. So there's no reason to say that she can prophesy 
over here, but she's not allowed to teach over there. That doesn't, that doesn't make any, any sense. Now, in 1 Corinthians 14, we read that passage that women should be silent in church. Again, I need to, I need to go to Kenneth Bailey, who I think illuminates this passage. Remember that you have a flood of women coming into this new upstart Jewish sect called, called Christianity. They want to be part of this. But also remember that in a patriarchal society that they found themselves in, most women would have been illiterate. Not all of them, but most of them, for sure. So now they are coming into this environment, and they could probably not understand the level of, of Greek or even Hebrew that, has, that, that, that is being read in the congregation, where the men would have been raised with that, a Jewish boy would have been, uh, um, it was expected of him to memorize the Torah before he was an adult. So, so that's his background. That's definitely not the girl's background. And now they are reading in Hebrew and doing this liturgical service. And it's also separate, by the way. You've got the, the females on this side, the males on this side. I've been in churches where that is still the case. It's very interesting. And there's Kenneth Bailey, what he says is that he has been in churches in the last 10 years in the Middle East, in Coptic churches, where they would speak Arabic, for example. And then the Arabic would be, it, it, it's not a low, it's not a vernac type of Arabic, it's a very high, posh, sophisticated Arabic, and the woman would not be able to understand. And he says, then the priest would say, woman, can you please keep quiet? Because they would start talking in the same way that we've got kids here trying to sit in my sermons and I mean uh, pray for them and 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 then after a while they get bored and they talk and then you say hey guys just quiet and down okay 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 and then after a while they talk again because they can't quite understand likewise in the first century it makes a lot of sense that a lot of women didn't understand the, the high language in which the service took place and Paul says keep quiet that's more than probably what happened in first Corinthians uh, 14 plus we can assume with a fair degree of certainty that the people who read 1 Corinthians 14 would have read 1 Corinthians 11 before they read 1 Corinthians 14, where they heard about women prophesying, praying in church, before they hear about them having to be quiet in church. If we take that 14 literally, it meant that all the women who just sang when Marcus led us in worship, shame on you, you liberals, get out. Because, because we need to be obedient to Scripture and you need to be silent. It cannot be that simplistic. Are you guys still with me? All right. Now, we come to this passage. And friends, it is super difficult. It is very, very tricky. I'm not sure if you guys, I think I heard a, a chuckle here somewhere. But I mean, geez, Paul is not making it easy for us. We, we talk here, um, so the next moment he talks about they've got an authority over their head. Uh, just look at, for man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. I mean, come on, because of the angels. That is such a, um, that is such a non sequitur. Uh, where on earth... Does, um, does that come in? I remember, um, you guys know Alvin Plantinga. Uh, you don't have to know about him, but he's sort of the, the, this philosopher of Christian philosophers. And a friend of mine ha uh, had lunch with him. 
and he's now this, he, this brilliant, brilliant mind. And they, in America, there is this law that says if a residential house is in a certain perimeter of a restaurant, they're not allowed to serve alcohol, or at least in this particular state. So they meet up at this restaurant, and they want to order a beer. So they ask Alvin Planning, what do you want? And he asks, can I get a beer? And the guy says, no. And he says, why not? And he says, there's a house. And it is the most um, non-sequitur thing. He didn't know this rule. Can I have a beer? No, why not? There's a house. <laughs> to, the, to the best philosopher in the land, there's absolute nonsensical statement. In any case, that's what it feels like. Now, that guy actually meant something very real with his statement, because there's a house. Paul means something very real when he says, because of the angels. But man, it's tricky. It's difficult. So let's, let's just try and humbly navigate through this. And friends, I, I've been looking at this for, for a week and reading loads of commentaries trying to make sense of it, and they are not even sure. They, when, when, when they give their perspective on this, they say, it could be this, it could be this, it could be this, it could be this. This is very ambiguous. This is very strange. So, so, so here's an attempt to figure this out. The, what Paul cannot say is that when women are made in the glory of God and man made in the, no, women are made in the glory of man and man made in the glory of God, he cannot say that women are not made in the image of God. It is impossible. Uh, first, uh, Genesis 1.27 says, uh, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. This is so foundational to Christian Jewish the uh, theology. There's no way that Paul would just flippantly uh, get rid of that. So we can just put that uh, to rest. Now, the context in which we find this passage is one of order in the church. It is a little bit chaotic in Corinth. People are speaking and shouting because they don't know what's going on. You have other prophets doing weird stuff. We're going to get to that later. Um, it is very noisy. It is very chaotic, and there's not a lot of order in that church. Now Paul is trying to tell them, you guys must have order, but he roots that order that they need to have in their church. He roots it in the order that was there at the creation. So that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to, to say this order in church needs to imitate the order that we have in creation. So he's trying to say, you guys must first do that, then you do that, put your head coverings on, keep quiet when they read something that you don't understand, go ask your husband later. Everything is about order, order, order. So now what he says is, guys, here's the order. Remember, God created man. And then how they translate, this is a better translation. The, the ESV translated, woman was created for man. And, and many scholars think that's a bad translation. It's rather, woman was created because of man. Because of man. Why? Because man was lonely. That is why it was created. But, but let me just take a step back. So God created man. Man is lonely. And, and then God creates Eve. Adam sings a song as soon as he sees Eve, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And this is sort of the climax of the creation story. And then in the mystical Jewish tradition, just for extra measure, I need to add this. 
the interpretation of this was that when that happened, when Eve was made on the, the, on the Sabbath, the angels and Adam and Eve sang praises to God. And every time we come together in church and we sing, then we sing praises to God with the angels. In other words, to a certain extent, when we come together as a church, we are acting out something of the creation account. I know that's complex. I, I don't expect you guys to follow it along because I didn't do a great job as, of trying to, to take you there. But what Paul is trying to say is that this is all about creation, and when we come together, it's all about new creation. And as was the case with the creation, and as is the case now with new creation in this service, there is a particular order to it. It is impossible that Paul is saying, man was created first, therefore he is better than the female. Why that would not make sense is it means that dirt is the best of all, because that was created first. All right? And then animals. Those are pretty amazing. And then right at the end, when God ran out of ideas, he created mankind. That logic doesn't make sense. So, so what's, what's at work here is probably the sense of order, of order. And then right at the end of the creation story, the angels sing. Now, Paul is saying, he said this earlier in the passage just to make things just slightly more complex, in, not in this passage, in the, in the letter. In 1 Corinthians 6, 3, he talks to the Corinthians, he says, get your act together, don't you know that one day you will judge the angels? Okay? So now he's saying, when you praise, put a head covering on, woman, when you prophesy, when you do your thing in church, because don't you know, this is like the last act in the creation story where everybody is singing together. And don't you know that one day these angels that are singing with you, that, that you will judge them? They look in on this world and they look in on mankind and they long for it. Don't you know that you will rule over them? So have authority over yourself. Put on the thing. Don't seduce the angels. I mean, that is now a silly, a silly way of putting it, but it's trying to say, this thing that you're doing is so holy, um, you can't just flippantly come in here in your bikini and do it. Don't you, don't you understand the, the implications of what you're doing? So dress accordingly. Act accordingly. Are you guys at least 60% with me? I'll take, six, I'll, take, I'll take 12% at this stage. All right. The angels that are present when we worship cannot be offended by any appearance of unholiness in the congregation. And uh, that's why the woman has to wear this authority on her head. Friends, there's a lot that I didn't say. There's a lot more that we can say. There's that First uh, Timothy 2 passage that's also very difficult. We can maybe talk about that in the Q&A. Let me say this. It's obviously difficult. And I've got many conservative friends, and they do not allow women to preach in their church or to have any off pastoral office. And I respect them. I am not necessarily keen on persuading them otherwise. I can see how you can end up on that side. I can see how you can read these things and say, this is where I land on it. I am not going to put up a 
a massive fight. The other thing that I want to stress is that many people say, ah, Yuan, I see what's happening here. This is just like the homosexual debate. You guys do a bit of hermeneutical gymnastics about this verse and this verse and this verse, and then the next moment, everything is fine. This is nothing like the homosexual debate, and I'll tell you why. Because what you see happening in the homosexual debate, for example, is every time there's a reference to homosexuality, then they would try their best to say, but this is not the homosexuality that we're talking about today. This is not the homosexuality that we're talking about today. That is the sum total of their argument. But when we are examining these biblical passages, it is very clear that women are leading in church in one way or the other. And it is made blurred by the fact that it seems like Paul is prohibiting it in some way or form or place or maybe completely in other places. But it's not like you are saying, um, look, it's now the 21st century, Women's, women are CEOs, they, they, they run countries, they run schools, so we must just get with the program. That is not what I'm advocating for here. I am saying that it seems that from the very beginning, women were leading in the church, one way or the other. So I don't think it is appropriate to conflate the two um, issues of homosexuality and, and women and say this is the same sort of hermeneutical gymnastics that is, that is taking place. I think something else that we need to say is that uh, Christianity were, was good news for women, and it is good news for women still. I also want to say that when we say that male and female are equal, we're not saying that they're not different. Of course they're different. They bring different, um, different uh, attributes to the thing. That is why when, when Adam is there and he's lonely in the work that he's doing, he gets a helper. And this helper is the same but different from him. And this helper brings a set of skills that he didn't have at his disposal. So it's, 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 it's really not... Uh, a scenario of, of it being, um, uh, I want to say, demeaning to, to, to be the helper. There, there are differences, even if we stress equality, but we're not trying to say men and women are exactly the same and they can do exactly the same thing. No, men will do things different to women, by and large, and vice versa, and that is also okay. The last thing that I want to say is that if we have a problem, I don't think there's a way of getting, uh, getting away from this, saying that ideally God wants men, but specifically husbands, to take control of their households, to be the head of the household. Now, I cannot relate to this. My my father died when I was very young, and I've always just had this matriarch uh, running the show and sort of scaring everybody in the neighborhood as she was doing it, and, and doing a, a decent job. Um, the, the, the woman in my life has always been strong and far more competent than, than men. I can say that almost without exception, including my own marriage. And... And I can also say that when the Bible expands on headship, it talks about the relationship between Jesus and the Father. And if this is the headship that men are supposed to take, 
then I don't think there will be any controversy. So the first passage where Jesus talks about headship, so let's just assume for a moment this is exactly how we understand it today as, as being um, maybe not the boss, but uh, having a, an authority, so to speak. Then what, what Jesus says in Mark 10, verse 42, is, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. So if you want to lead, this is your posture. But then, probably one of the most beautiful hymns in the Bible, one of the most beautiful passages, and it is well worth committing this to memory as well, comes to us in Philippians. And in Philippians, we have the hymn to Christ. And it talks about this relationship between Jesus and God the Son and God the Father and how they are mutually submitting to one another and and just look at this and tell me if you think that it is demeaning because also uh, Paul and the Bible wants us to imitate something of the relationship within the Trinity in our relationships with each other and definitely um, within, within, within marriage. He says this, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of man, uh, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What makes this hymn so special is the fact that Jesus empties himself at the instruction of God the Father, and he, he empties himself and he eventually dies on this, on this terrible cross, and then God the Father exalts him, and he's the name above every name. And then as soon as Jesus is on top of the throne there, then he says, I just do that for the glory of God the Father. (laughs) Can you see how they are just passing praise from one person to the next? If that is the type of headship that we are called to as men, I don't think that there will be a controversy. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is such a difficult uh, passage to, to navigate and uh, passages and uh, therefore we ask for a lot of humility and a lot of grace and yeah Lord there are people who uh, just have different opinions and are convicted of different things and we want to respect that as well but we also want to understand uh, how to live out this, this life of, of Jesus in your in, in this community that you've given us and we want to be Uh, we we want to be obedient as we do that. Uh, So therefore, we ask, Lord, that you will guide us in this very difficult issue as well. But more than that, Lord, 
we want to thank you for this revolution that you started and the fact that we can be uh, this, this wonderful uh, community that has that, that, that just be part of this revolution that has really changed the world for good, especially for, for women. And Lord, we pray that we can continue with that, that we can continue with that wonderful work that was, uh, that was started. And Lord, as far as headship is concerned, thank you so much for the example that you've given us, um, that we can't boss it over anyone. We can't even demand that we are the head of anything. The only thing that we can do is serve the other person um, so that they feel incredibly loved. And I pray, Lord, that we will be convicted of that as well. And lastly, Lord, if there are things in your scripture that we simply do not like, I pray that we will have the humility to say that we can accept certain things that we do not like and still follow you in the process. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.